This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, and you're listening to episode 182. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. Now, we just announced today the initial speakers and sponsors for our upcoming event, the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held on August 17 through 19, 2021. Uh, we're really excited about our, our full list of speakers. This is just the, the first batch of speakers. I mean, we have a whole bunch that uh, we'll be announcing as we get closer, as well as the full agenda and the initial presenting company. So be sure to go to our website and register the website is conference.snn.network. Registration is open, so click the register button once you're there. Uh, you'll be updated as soon as we have every new announcement uh, as they come out. So again, that's the SNN Network Summer Virtual Event, which will be held August 17th through 19, 2021. The website to register is conference.snn.network. Now for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Connor McNeil. He is the owner of the Investment Talk newsletter and known as at Investment Talk, that's with two Ks at the end, on Twitter. Uh, for a while, Connor was anonymous on Twitter and, and only very recently changed up his marketing strategy. And he has developed quite a following since starting his Twitter account in February 2020 and then launching his newsletter in May 2020. What was really encouraging about my chat with Connor and really cool and exciting about it is that despite being at the young age that he's at, he wholeheartedly gets that with investing, one is always a student of the game. My impression is that that's why he's seeing the success he's having and that he will continue to do so. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 182 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my conversation with Connor McNeil. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And today, my guest is someone I've been following a long time. I sound like a broken record. I say that for everybody. <laughs> I, I feel like at this point, like I, I follow, I've, I've been on Twitter since 2009. Like, of course, I followed yeah. everybody for a while, you know. But uh, joining me today is Connor McNeil. He is the owner of the Investment Talk newsletter. You can find that newsletter at investmenttalk.substack.com. Connor, thank you for joining me today. I know it's the afternoon where you are, so I appreciate you yeah. uh, jumping on. No, thanks for inviting me. I was looking forward to this for a while. So we get to get some discussion going today. Listen, I'm just thankful. Listen, you're my first, you're my first Scotsman on, on the show. Yeah. Is that right? Is that the proper term? Scotsman? I'd say, yeah, Scotsman sounds right. Yeah. 
That sounds right. Okay, good. I, I flowed kind of nice. I, yeah. I just wanted to make sure. But, you know, I, I was just thankful that like when we were talking offline, I was like, okay, his accent's not too crazy. Like I, I'm, I'll, I'll be okay, I think. You yeah. Know, you know, but uh, like, have you ever been accused of having like just that, that by, by fellow colleagues of American ilk? Uh, that the, I, think every, I think every time I was anonymous on Twitter for the longest time. And then when I became unanonymous and started, you know, jumping on Zoom calls to kind of, you know, meet people face to face, a lot of people were just like, oh, I expected us really like Willie from The Simpsons or something like that. But um, we might get into that, but I didn't really actually grow up in Scotland. So I have this kind of Englishy, European y, bland accent, um, which I prefer because um, the Scottish accent, I, yeah, it's quite hard to understand if you're not from there. I mean, it, it, I, I was telling you the joke offline also, like it reminds me of that there's Robin Williams, a stand-up, like Robin Williams off Broadway where he does, I have to send you the link of just the clip where he's talking about the Scottish accent. It is one of the greatest. Yeah, please do. I've ever seen. It's too funny. All right, man. Well, you know, as you said, you were, you were anonymous on Twitter for a while. You know, you've recently, you know, come out of your shell and and has announced the world as Connor. Not necessarily Connor McNeil, but at least, you know, we got halfway yeah. there. We're Connor. This so, is an exclusive. Like, I haven't shared my second name, so you've got that exclusive there. So Wow, this is a big, this is kind of a big deal. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't realize, like, how big of a deal this was going to be, but I'm really excited about that. But you know, let, let's 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 share your background. You know, where, where did your passion for investing begin, and, and let's go from there. So, if we, go, if we go right back to the start, I would say I didn't have the typical. You know, like a lot of people uh, might read the Intelligent Investor from a young age, or that you know, pouring through ten k's at sixteen. Um, some people are like that. I wasn't. I really didn't get involved in investing until I was about eighteen. But I think prior to that, a few years prior to that. It was more kind of business that I got interested in. So I was always a good pupil at school, maybe a bit a bit lazy, but the grades were always fine. And then when I was maybe 15, 16, and in the UK, we have a, we have a kind of a class called business management, which just kind of covers a broad range of kind of public and private entities and, you know, corporate structure and all that kind of stuff. Anything from marketing all the way up and down the ladder. Um, and that was the first ever class that kind of, really interested me like i in math so i'd fall asleep a lot i liked english but you know they're just classes but then when business management i found myself actually studying outside of school hours reading the textbooks for kind of leisure it was just really interesting um and then that kind of led me on this road to start reading a bunch of autobiographies from entrepreneurs and really just hammering down on that kind of whole business aspect and I took all the other classes like accounting and business admin so at that point I was just really fascinated by kind of businesses and how people grow businesses and not really so much about investing so I studied those for about two years and then went off to university um, to study economics no idea why I chose that in hindsight I think someone one of my friends maybe pointed out in one of the prospectuses and I thought you know that sounds kind of cool it's kind of related to business I didn't want to do a vague business management degree. I wanted something a bit more tailored. So I did economics for four years. And in the first year, that's kind of when I discovered investing. So at this point, I would have been 18, just around 18. And in the first semester, should I say, we didn't actually do any economics. We just did a lot of kind of um, psychology and you know, kind of generic accounting and all that kind of stuff. But one of them was a class on 
um, I can't remember the title of it, but it was basically just about um, kind of um, corporate structure and, you know, how like private and public businesses function and the key differences there and kind of shareholder responsibilities, stakeholders, all that kind of stuff. Um, and in that class, we had this old lecturer who was one of those lecturers that was kind of, you know, he didn't come from academia. He came from kind of experience in the business and he used to work for a lot of big banks and he was just, he was just like a funny old guy. But he had a lot of like real life experience and I found that fascinating. And within that module, um, we did we did discuss investing and then that kind of, I already had this kind of interest in businesses in general, but then when I started exploring, you know, these businesses are kind of public entities and people can read all about them through filings and you can invest in them and you can track them, watch them grow. And that kind of sparked an interest there. So when I was 18, I just kind of thought, you know, I like economics. Um, I don't know if it's something that I want to do full time when I leave. And I discovered that later because as you, you know, go deeper into the kind of economic rabbit hole, you just realize what this is not a science. It's just, you know, it's just a bunch of theories. It's really interesting, but it's just not something I want to do. So when I was 18, that's when I really started investing. I got a brokerage account and read a few books. Some of the first ones I read were just the classic ones. I think for some reason, people just gravitate towards the intelligent investor. I read that one, didn't come away from it with like a value-oriented mindset. I just kind of picked out all the, the mental philosophies um, from Benjamin Graham, you know, kind of being willing to kind of withstand a lot of volatility if, you, you know, if, you, if you're sure about what you're doing, all that kind of stuff, the kind of anything related to net nets. And I did read security analysis later, but that just wasn't something that I was really interested in. So I took a lot away from the mental aspect of that. And I started reading a lot of Philip Fisher, all this kind of stuff. And I was just reading this on the side whilst I was studying at university. We didn't really cover investing too much in the economics course, but we did we did touch on it sometimes. So it's kind of just like, you know, hammering away at all this investing stuff and then also doing my studies. And when I got into like year two and three, then I was like, yeah, I don't really want to do economics, but I'll continue the degree. Um, and all this time I was investing terribly so I had a brokerage account and, you know, I tried to apply the rules of Benjamin Graham and I ended up buying the most ridiculous stuff that was, you know, nothing related to what Benjamin Graham taught. But at the time, like you're young and you're naive and, you, you know, you think you're doing something smart. So that was mainly a mixture of looking at investors that I knew and seeing what they hold and kind of trying to see if I can understand that and buy it. I think everyone does that. You know, I was looking at what Berkshire hold, I'd buy coca-cola <laughs> i'd buy coca-cola i'd buy you know all the stuff that he owns without un really understanding there's a reason why he owns it at such size and all that kind of stuff um so the first few years my portfolio just looked like kind of old boomer buffett stocks and also a bunch of random you know chat room micro cap small cap stuff that i just didn't understand um i remember the first instance where i kind of created my own idea you know because when you first start you're just kind of taking out really taking ideas from everyone else and you know saying with this you know this is something i'm comfortable with um but i remember in maybe 2017 there was kind of that bustle around the cannabis industry in canada and they were going to legalize it the following year so i thought you know with no real due diligence i just thought well surely buying cannabis companies a year before they're allowed to kind of legally operate would be a sensible idea so i did that and then experienced that total rush of the boom and then not even during the bust I sold like when there was like a hiccup so like 
I think the first one I bought, there's a few, but it was like Canopy Growth Corp and it like doubled on me and then it went down 50%. Um, and I just sold immediately. And then that was like the first lesson there. Well, there's many lessons there, but that was a kind of the first one where I was like, I felt like I got duped because, you know, then it went up and then eventually it did crash. So in hindsight, you know, 2020. Um, but yeah, I would say the first few years was just kind of like struggling to get through this investing process and not really knowing what I'm investing for or why I'm investing. I was just really trying to find, you know, stuff that I was interested in and stuff that I could vaguely understand, but, you know, in hindsight and understand any of it. It kind of, so, yeah. you know, you know, it's funny, you know, it's funny to, cause I experienced kind of a similar thing once I realized I wanted to be in, in, in finance mm. is like at my university, I went to UCSD in San Diego and at the time they now have a business school, of course, you know, after I graduate and, uh, you know, at the time though, there were the, you only had two paths. You were management sciences, which what the hell is that? And then mm. there's economics, you know? It's it's just so funny and like it sucks sometimes how for most kids like you're going to college like especially if you know that you already have this interest in mm. business and investing and yeah the argument could always be made like well you went to the wrong school it's like hey well sometimes that's the school you got into and they don't have mm -hmm. exactly what I want you know so it's 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 funny how so many so many people fall into that where it's like all right I guess I'll get this economics you just kind of take it and then you know fumble into something else yeah yeah you know it's so it's so funny you know but and and then you say like you know and then they do what a, a one course on investing mm -hmm. and it's like oh okay oh, I, thanks you know and then and then the rest of it is just theory which is good theory think, it's important to know yeah I think even at that well yeah economics taught me so much about kind of how the world works so I'm always grateful for that um right but then even if I knew I wanted to study investing, if you can do that, there was like very few universities that offered, you know, a course that was specifically for that. There was in, um, in Scotland, there's one in Aberdeen that kind of puts you through four years and then does your CFA as well. Um, but yeah, so um, to continue going on the, the brand I was going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I got to the end of, the four years of studying economics and then you know gradually kind of sharpening my investor tool set as i was going on still terrible though um and then when i graduated like most students i didn't really understand what i want to do you know i was kind of in this kind of impasse phase where i was like i know i don't want to be an economist um but i don't really feel like i have the skills to kind of go into asset management or you know anywhere down that path that's kind of where i want to go anything related to kind of the investment industry so I decided to do a master's and in Scotland university is quote unquote free. Um, so that was, you know, a privilege for me, but a luxury, like, and I appreciate that most people can't just simply go, I want to do an extra year of university because it's expensive. Um, but it didn't cost me anything. And I felt like I'll have a year to kind of, you know, think about more, you know, more about what I want to do. So when I started the master's I also enrolled in the CFA program at the same time, and I was doing those two in tandem. And it was quite easy because I don't know about in the States, but in um, Scotland, business management classes are very laid back. You know, if you're in medicine, you'll be in there five days a week. If you're doing business, you'll be in there for 12 hours a week. And that was the same for the master's program as well. I picked the most generic master's program, one that I knew that I would kind of be good at and one that I knew had a lot of overlap with my degree. So I could maybe... I mean, not plagiarize myself, but rehash things into, you know, 
like very minimal effort. I just wanted this masters to kind of be on the back burner while I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And that actually worked out well. Um, so I did that. I started the CFO program and then about halfway through my master's, I was applying for jobs as well. And then I got a job at a, a fintech firm and the, the role where I stayed for about three years and the role was basically a mixture of things, but it was mainly a lot of data and we weren't just working with equities. There was fixed income and derivatives and all that kind of stuff. And my job was basically a data pusher slash analyst. And I would be talking with investment managers and insurance clients all day. Um, talking about their book. Um, and I had nothing to do with the kind of trading aspect of that. Um, but it was a good, it was a good eye-opener into the space and it was fun. I was there for three years. It was a good job for graduate. Um, but yeah, at one point, halfway through my master's, I, was, I had a full-time job. I was doing the CFA and I was doing the master's as well. And that was quite a lot. But then within six months, the master's was done. Um, and I just continued doing the CFA and this job for the next two and a half years. And that would lead me up to about four months ago. And if we take it a step back from there, probably in January or February 2020, I just started a Twitter account randomly because surprisingly enough, even though I worked in the industry, there wasn't a lot of my kind of inner social circle that were really interested in investing. There was maybe two or three guys at work. Um, that were interested, which was good, but I just had this kind of insatiable appetite to start discussing stuff. You know, after what, six, seven years by that point, I felt like I had a solid enough understanding to, you know, really get into a conversation about it. Um, not Still not brilliant, but still, had, you know, I could have a conversation. So I wanted to kind of share some of my thoughts and maybe interact with other people on Twitter. So I just created an anonymous Twitter account called Investment Talk, because that's basically what I want to do, but the other way around. Um, had a green, a big green logo. I don't know if you ever followed me at that point, but it's just a big, yeah, it was a green logo with the words yep. IT on it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then I just started posting stuff and ideas and then, you know, gradually just building a following and communicating with other people, finding good investors. Um, and just found like the amount of smart people on Twitter is crazy. There's like hedge fund managers, people that have been in the industry for like 30 years, just like you know, dishing out advice left, right, and center, like it's a really valuable tool. Um, and just, yeah, I didn't, I didn't expect any of it. I just wanted to go on there and kind of share opinions, had no ideas for like writing a newsletter, but then maybe four or five or maybe four months into it, I just started tinkering and, you know, sharing longer form ideas in the form of a newsletter. And it was really just kind of sharing the equity research that I was doing because, when I was on Twitter, I noticed like a lot of people didn't really have a, a solid understanding of accounting. I don't know if it's just people I was talking to at the very beginning, um, but there's a lot of greener investors um, that just didn't really have a solid understanding of accounting. Um, so during the kind of lockdown period in the UK, I had a lot of free time. I was working from home. So I just started writing a kind of a book, if you will. And it was it ended up being about 200 pages long, but it was basically just kind of the beginner's guide to you know, how to work your way around a 10K. And it, it just basically showed you what an, an income statement is, how you read it, what all the parts mean, balance sheet, cash flow statement. Um, didn't go too much. It didn't go on too many tangents. Didn't talk about proxies or anything like that. It was just a basic, if you read this, you should be able to kind of look at a, one of the financial statements and understand what's going on. So I spent like a month writing that. 
and then just posted it on a on a platform called Gumroad and sold a few copies. And at that point, I was like, there's like a light bulb moment. Like I've just created something digitally, and then you know someone's got some value from it. I think it was like five dollars or something. It wasn't it wasn't insane, but um, sold. I can't remember the exact number, but it was definitely in the thousands of copies. And then I thought, and then just the feedback and. You know, I just thought I bet I might start sharing more ideas. So I had I made like a, a newsletter, and that eventually kind of rolled into the investment talk newsletter, where the the base of it is that I'm just sharing kind of opinion pieces or larger kind of equity research pieces or kind of more holistic discussion. Um, and it's just grown and grown, and now there's kind of a good little community built around that. So that's fun. And then this year, after about a year of doing that, this year. So I'm just talking for ages here, but this year, um, I was someone approached me and basically offered me a Substack Pro contract. Which, for those of you listening that don't know what that is, it's basically I can't go into too much detail, but basically Substack just flipped the switch. So when I was doing it independently whilst working, ninety percent of the revenues would come to me. Substack would take a ten percent cut. Um, and under a pro contract for a certain period of time, they flip it. So they take 90%, I get 10%, but they pay you, you know, a sum, um, you know, for the period. And it was attractive enough that I quit my job instantly and then just started doing it full time. And that kind of brings me to where I am now. Um, so, yeah. All right. There we, you know, we, we made it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, that's that. Look, hey, that's an incredible background, and there's so and there's so many different rabbit holes we can go down there. But I yeah. mean, you know, it, what's most interesting is that you never really had this passion for writing, and then all of a sudden, yeah. here you go. It's like it's like you did it for yourself. It's like I'm going to create my own guide for how I read a 10k. You know, if somebody wants to buy it, great. But at the end of the day, like I did this for myself, so I can narrow down like this is my process. You know, was hmm. that your mind? Was that your mindset, or it just seems like that? It's, it's a good point that you made and it's probably something that I forgot to mention, but I never felt creative before like the last few years. I never thought of myself as a creative person. I always thought I was quite you know, regimented, mundane, just didn't have that much creativity. And the reason for writing that book was, you know, partially for me, partially for someone else. You know, a lot of people, when I was talking with people, they just didn't understand stuff. So I wanted to just be able to like give them something and say, you know, read this, then you'll be able to understand it um, and just kind of put it on paper. That wasn't super creative because you really it's like a manual um but a lot of the stuff that i'm doing now is i think is quite creative um and now that i have the free time to do it as well like as soon as i quit my job i just felt like you know a weight had been lifted and i had all this kind of creative energy but yeah it's been interesting the the change of the last two years because i wanted to go into you know fund management and i was planning to staying at my job and you know maybe trying to get a job at bailey gifford big fund here I think it's well known in the US as well, globally. Um, that was my goal. Um, and then just when all this kind of stuff happened, you know, I thought I actually prefer this kind of lifestyle better. I don't want to be in an office. I want to be able to work from Starbucks and, you know, talk with people every day and that kind of stuff. So it's kind of, yeah, it's enlightening. Um, hey, Connor, they might hear yeah. this and uh, they might hear this and make you an offer you can't refuse, man. Uh, you know. <laughs> Don't don't say don't don't say you know I'm not opposed to it yet. Like you never uh, you ne you never know. Yeah. <laughs> so all right. So you caught us up to where you're at today. You know mm. you're now you're now publishing the newsletter. That's your full time job. 
you know, so for those maybe who haven't read the newsletter yet, or maybe you've only read a couple of articles, you know, what, what would you say is then your main investing philosophy as, as you are Connor right now? You know, because we know that's always going to evolve probably yeah. as you continue to in your career. And, and I'm sure it's changed since your start. So right now, what would you say is your investing philosophy? That's a good question. So I would start strictly by just saying I always consider myself as a student, you know, like when even when I'm writing these kind of reports, there's never a solicitation of like, you need to buy this stock. It's really just kind of like, here's my unbiased opinion of what this business is doing and where I think it might go. Um, so I'm always very wary of that, um, you know, and telling people that, you know, I'm learning here as well. I think it's about being kind of candid and honest about that too. I would consider myself definitely retail. You know, I don't manage people's funds. I never have. I don't think I ever will. So there's that to consider. And when you consider that I'm 25, um, started really studying about this when I was 18. It's only been seven years. That's like typically not even a full cycle. So just getting all these disclosures out of the way. Um, but yeah, so I would say I'm like definitely in that learning process. And for me, what I'm trying to understand um, or what I'm trying to do with the kind of investing thing is just kind of, you know, the quote unquote, get rich slowly, kind of build long-term wealth. But in doing that, it's really in investing in companies that I understand. I don't really have, I, I did write an IPS, an investment policy statement, and it's kind of, I would say it's like the, the baseline to, you know, how you're trying to move. So I always have that in the back of my mind, but I don't really have a preference for size. I don't really have a preference for industry. It will just be stuff. The, the first and foremost is, do I understand this business and do I understand kind of how it gets from where it is today to where it gets to in maybe five years? So I'm always thinking in like three to five years. Although I like to say I'll hold this for 10 years. I just don't think that's realistic. Um, but I, under I understand the whole never sell thing um, with its many nuances, but I'm always of the mind, you know, this investment is for, this is like tailored for like five years out. And if it gets to where it is in five years out, then I'll kind of reassess it then. So the, the first goal is kind of, can I understand it and where it's going? And then I would say, I'm always trying to stick within a circle of competence. And I tweeted something a few months ago and Ian Castle made a good point where you should view a circle of competence like two rings, um, but I would, I would add a further one now. But basically, it's like if you imagine a circle and you've got two other circles inside it and then the very tiny, smallest one in the center, that's like your kind of your base of knowledge and where you're comfortable investing. Um, so something like Starbucks, you know, I've held that for a few years. You know, you can say what you will about the the, the stock, but as the kind of as the, the company, I'm a big fan of that. And I feel like I understand it fairly well. Then when you get out of the next ring, it's something that's like something you are willing and potentially able to understand, um, but it's not, you know, directly in your circle of competence. So like if we're talking about Starbucks, which is kind of a coffee restaurant, if you want to call it that, and then maybe in the outer ring, it might be a sushi chain. You know, I understand how the logistics of these kind of stores work, but I don't understand the sushi industry. That's kind of outside of my course, you know, circle of competence but it's still kind of within reach and then outside of that circle would just be stuff i have no idea about so like oil energy healthcare. you know i just have no insight into that so it would take me a long time to kind of understand the industry before i even then dive into a particular company and even when i do that i might not understand that very well 
So I try to stay within those two circles. And then as I get older and more experienced, you know, kind of push out and learn about more things. Um, but yeah, I think on the whole, it's really just about trying to buy stuff that I feel is maybe fairly valued at a certain point in time, understand where it's going and understand the business well enough so that if something bad happens, I can look at that objectively and then kind of understand if I still want to hold that company or not. You know, and I would say definitely before I conclude, and admittedly, I'm a, a way better business analyst than, a, than I am a stock analyst. So I feel like I'm, you know, competent, you know, relative to my experience in understanding what makes a good business. But then I definitely lack in the side that's, you know, what makes this a good stock right now? Because you can have a great business, doesn't make a good stock. You know, over a period of five years, it will just, you know, it couldn't change. It could always be a great business, but it might only be a great stock for 40% of that time. Um, so I think with experience, that's something I'm definitely looking to kind of nail down a bit more because that's what really makes a break or make or breaks a great investment analyst is having both of those skill sets. Yeah, let's go down that path because that's really interesting. I mean, you know, yeah. like what 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 have you learned thus far that's helped you in that learning process that's helped you separate? All right, this is a good business, but it might not necessarily be a good stock, you know, so I, what, what have you learned so far and where are you at with that? You can you can do all the work and you can understand you can understand the industry and the business and the competitors and you can pick out a winner um, from that in terms of the business. You can do this without looking at valuation. You could just you know this is a company within this kind of niche of companies that I think is going to either continue dominating a market or going to penetrate and you know maybe take the second or third or first spot from the current market leader. You can understand that, but then when you look at valuation, if something's trading far in excess of what you think it should be trading at then it might not be a great stock at that point in time like if you look at i don't really follow zoom at all but if you look at zoom just over the and i, I hate using 2020 to 2021 because it's just like it's so warped um but zoom was you know it was a, probably a good business before corona i don't know um but then you know during the initial when the world started locking down it was probably a good business and a good stock and then when it, when it kind of, you know, went way in excess of its kind of core value, there was a period when it went down 50%, like at the, near the peak of that. And this is super hindsight. So like, I must just sound like an idiot, but you know, when you're at the very peak of that, it's not as good a stock as it was, you know, X hundred percent ago. Cause it's just, you know, it's not only because it's ran up so much, but it's because if you're looking at the current value relative to kind of the prospects in three to five years with every kind of percentage increase in, uh, share price, your future return is, you know, chipping down as well, if you're buying in at that point. Um, and also there's the, there's the narrative thing. I know narratives move markets in the short run. And I love the quote by Benj Benjamin Graham, where it's the voting machine and the weighing machine. <clears throat> That's my favorite quote, because um, I think it actually tells you a lot about life as well as investing. Um, so I always try to ignore the short-term voting machine, but there's definitely you know, kind of strategies where you can bend that to your will, not market timing so much, but just understanding when is it a good time to buy a sector or a stock. So I think that's something I definitely have to work on because for the, for the most point, I'm not super, I would say I'm relatively insensitive to value, but not like ridiculously. I wouldn't buy anything at any price, but I think that's something I could definitely work on in future and my returns will probably thank me for that. Well, you know, the, the mindset that you have where you consider yourself a quality business analyst first, I think that's such an edge and advantage to your process. And um, listen, this is someone, mm. listen, I, 
doing this a couple of years, but I still know nothing, you know? And, and at the end of the day, everybody has their process and if they're making money, great. Doesn't, you know, forget what I'm saying. But just objectively, I think that's an interesting thought process because it allows you to have a longer time horizon, right? I mean, because even at like a Zoom, for instance, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a shareholder, but like, I remember right when the pandemic happened, like I was actually, I was using Skype to do all these recordings, but mm. then I, but then I switched to Zoom outside of thinking about pandemic and, I'll, and it was a very simple reason because with Skype, you have to download a whole other recording program in order to record your actual, your pods mm. or whatever conversation. With Zoom, it's all it's all right here on the platform. Okay, it's, yeah. it's super easy, um, and the pricing was really not that bad at all. Um, so, like that was that was, for instance, my thought process. So, like, but but my my main reason for saying something like that is because you know you, you think of Zoom or maybe some of these other you know um, these some of these other brands like a Kleenex or Xerox because Zoom I would argue probably has that you know talking mm. over the internet branding. At this point, like yeah. you, people used to say Skype. Now it's like, hey, I'm going to jump on a Zoom call, not a Skype call. You know, um, True. you know, so when you think about that, I mean, do you have, have you thought of I should probably formulate this as a question now. But um, <laughs> but have you have you do you then think about certain names then like even even though now you are starting to look more at the stock and being a stock analyst, have you then still used that business analyst approach to your advantage thinking like, all right, well, I don't really have to really think about so much the stock and my entry price because I think the long-term time horizon on this is, you know, I could be buying this. It could be cheap right now. You know, how, how do you think about that? It's something that you just kind of, I personally learn from it best just by making so many mistakes. Like I bought stuff at the peak before and I'm just being like, oh, wow. Um, there's some, there's some, like I bought Apple and was down on it for like maybe one, one and a half years. I think. It was in 2018 and it was just right before that kind of China stuff. I bought it and then two weeks later, it was down like 35% and didn't really recoup for like a year and a half. Um, so just when you experience things like that and it's like your own kind of money on the line, that's when it kind of really digs. You can read about it and you can understand it. Um, but when you actually feel it, that's just when it kind of ingrains into your memory. Um, I think that's just how the brain functions. You know, it remembers pain. Um, and in terms of, trying to kind of be more of a stock analyst. It's like, I can find a good business and I might not invest in it because I feel like it's not appropriately priced. Like when I was looking at Roku last year, I spent about a month on that. And I was like, I love this business, but I don't love the price. And that was at like just below $200. I don't know where it trades at now, but I think it's maybe two or two and a half times that. Um, so you kick yourself in moments like that, but then I always view it like if you if you stay regimented on the aggregate level over the whole kind of period of your investing career, it's probably going to save you a lot. You know, if you're just if you're overpaying for something after you've missed Roku because you're like, oh, Roku doubled in the space of a year, then the next time it's you know it's not going to be Roku next time. So you have to stay reasonably um, strict with that. And I think for me, when I first look at a company. People say you don't look at the valuation, but I mean, the data is just there. Like when you hop on Y charts or whatever, um, the the dollar figure is just there. So you probably see it, but I don't really pay too much attention to valuation until the end. So after I've looked at the industry, I've looked at the 
the competition and the one that I'm currently kind of assessing whether I want to own it or not, I'll kind of ballpark a figure of where do I think this should trade? And if the valuation is way off that, I'll just put it in a watch list and maybe observe it for however many quarters um, and just keep trying to continue to understand the business. Um, but that's kind of limited because I currently own 20 positions and that is a lot of work for me to kind of understand them to the extent that I want to. So having a watch list that's, you know, 30, 40, um, that's just not doable. So my watch list is very small, has maybe six to 10 names in it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think in relation to your question, it's just something that I'm gradually kind of picking up over time and from yeah. learning from other people as well. And I, and you know, it, it's, I'm probably projecting a little bit because I'm in micro cap land. It's basically, you know, it's mostly, you know, especially if you want to win at this game, you know, you've mm. got to, you're more or less are holding for the long term on the aggregate, like not, I'm obviously there's some short-term strategies in small micro cap, you know, and mm. seeing short-term catalysts, special situations, but like for the most part, you know, the, some of the best investors I know have held, you know, like you look at a Jason Hirschman with Expel, he held that for 10 plus years, you know, it's, and, but, but he knew the business inside and out. Right. You know, so you saw that there was a special situation in this opportunity and, and, and that, and that type of story is comes up over and over again with microcaps. So that's, that's why I brought it up. Cause it's interesting when you think about it with small microcaps versus some of the, like the blue chippers and, mm. and, and, you know, especially in terms of valuation, cause it, it, at, at a certain point, you, know, you said it yourself when it comes to like a Roku or Apple or some of these other names that you're just like, how like, is this, is this market frothiness or is this just, mm. are they actually just really sustainably growing at, at an incredible pace, you know, like that, that's the question that you always have to ask yourself. You just don't want to be caught like, ah, oh, I bought it the damn peak, mm -hmm. you know, but I guess maybe that's just short, it's short termism a little bit. I don't know. It's tough. It's such a, the, the part that I love most about it um, really is the kind of just learning more about the world and exploring kind of how businesses function. But I also love the mental aspect of it as well. I love anything. Um, I don't play so much anymore, but I used to love poker in university just because it's the kind of the social aspect of it. And you're kind of, it's just such a, a mental buzz. Um, I was never playing for big stakes. I think it was maybe like five or 10 uh, pounds and you buy in and you just play for a few hours um, in person, but it's just really exhilarating that way. And I think investing is the same thing. You know, you could buy something that you think is fairly valued and it just doesn't move for four years. And then you just, you know, constantly that's going to build up, you know, like you're wrong, you're wrong. And, it, you know, it could be that you're wrong, but if you really understand the business and you really understand the value in there and you feel like nobody else does, then chances are you're probably going to get repaid at some point. Right. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting one, especially I've not been investing for super long um, compared to most people, you know, but this last few years was learned so many things crazy. Um, I probably could have made a lot more money last year if I wasn't so... Um, regimented or sticking to my goals I pivoted a little bit away from i used to, i like mainly i'm like barbelled so i'll maybe have you know that kind of thing going on but then last year i kind of pivoted a bit more into tech um not like a, a, a novel idea it was just the fact that you know these companies are probably going to benefit and i'm really not sure what's going to happen to something like starbucks if it if it's shut for a year or two or whatever i just had no idea um, so I pivoted quite heavily in 2020, but then you look at people in um, that year that just went balls to the wall, like frothy Momo, and they made insane amounts of money. 
Um, but I personally would, I think I would struggle to kind of like know when to stop that, you know, clip that exposure. Um, but yeah, it was a crazy year. You could have just went for one whole year and just riding it and no consequences until it came around to what, maybe February, March this year. Um, but yeah, it's super interesting just seeing what other people are doing and yeah. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, I was, a, a during, from March, I mean, starting in March, 2020, I mean, I, look we were all on lockdown like and we're mm. looking at stocks and finance like you really can't help but but have just been zeroing in on what the hell is happening i mean i i look at the portfolio like my watch list portfolio that i created at that time it was all yeah. it was all blue chippers just because it was pretty amazing to see the kind of haircuts they were taking at that time um but real quick i wanted to go on something because this is this is actually a topic that we haven't really talked about on the pod and mm. it, it has to do with you know when when you're a new investor and you're, you're, you know, you, you have some experience with a company that, um, you know, the product, you know, the service you've probably used it or consumed it. Like you talk about Starbucks, like I, I drink the mm. coffee. I love Starbucks or I use a Yeti. I love, you know, I'm not a shareholder either. Um, but you know, have you ever got, when you were first kind of doing this and, and looking at investing and looking at some of these companies, did you ever get into experience of like, I know this bit, I know this service, I know this product, but I really find the business confusing. You know, like, have you ever, have you had that experience? Right now, flooding into my mind is the complete opposite occasion where I know, the, mm. I know the product and I'm like, oh, is this a good business? Um, yeah, nothing springs to mind. That's a really good question. Um, let me think. And here, maybe to add a little bit to it, is it, it maybe you find, maybe not necessarily found the business confusing, but you found mm. the growth prospect confusing. Like, where are they going? Like, what's the, what, what's happening here? There's no, like, I'll probably, after we conclude this, I'll probably have so many things go through my mind, but not, there's nothing really springing to my mind. I remember the only time I really kind of had a, a realization is when, you know, when you first start investing and you buy all these, you copy what kind of Buffett's doing and stuff. I remember just looking through my portfolio once because um, I hadn't really checked it for a few weeks um, or I would check it once every few weeks um, while I was in that really hardcore learning phase. And then when I got to a point where I felt like I understood what I was doing a bit more, I looked at my portfolio and was like, why do I own all this stuff? Like Coca-Cola, there's a point in time where you might want to own that, but similar to what you said, you know, it's not a melting ice cube at all, um, but I just don't get where the, the growth is going to come from. It's probably just going to kind of, you know, muscle along with the rate of the economies that it's present within. Um, but yeah, I can only think of examples on the other end. Like when I was young and single, um, I used Tinder a lot before it was really a premium app. It was mostly free at that point. And I remember, you know, wondering if the business is public this was kind of when I was learning about all the cannabis companies and all that kind of stuff and just, you know, going on so many different tangents um, foolishly. And I actually invested in Match Group. I think it was in 2018 when it was still owned by IEC. And I can't remember the share price. It was sub 100, maybe 50s, somewhere around that or lower. And then I made a decent return on it within like half a year to a year, maybe something like 45 40 to 50 percent and i sold it and i always think back you know on that moment and just be like why did i do that i now own it again disclosure um i bought some last year 
um, obviously at a way, you know, higher valuation has grown quite a lot since then. But I remember just looking at that business when I was still relatively a novice and just thinking, you know, I understand this business. I understand how it makes money. I'm seeing all my friends using it, um, that kind of thing. So that was the first moment I really remember when I was like, this is a product that I use and it's kind of incentivized me to go look at um, another one. At the time, there wasn't, I mean, Tinder was quite novel because, you know, I could go on a rant here, but yeah, Tinder didn't have too much competition for the age group that it was trying to penetrate. Um, no pun intended. Um, so, yeah. So I want to go back down another rabbit hole that you're talking about how like, you know, um, you're talking about, you know, you started, you started kind of adopting, looking at some more boring ideas or boring, mm. boring businesses, you know, and you, you wrote, this is actually a very serious question, you know, for, you wrote an article titled good investing is often boring. So this is actually a two part question. My first question here is why did you have to use a photo of a, a baseball for the thumbnail? You know, that, 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 that really hurt a lot as uh, this is America's pastime and you had to use that as the thumbnail. I mean, come on. So my idea on that was now baseball is just like nobody watches baseball in the UK. So I don't even understand how it works. It's like <laughs> the American version of rounders, but I understand the basics. But my thought was, and I think I wrote something about it on the inside of the article. Um, it was basically just, um, you know, and it's not a novel concept by me. You know, I can't remember who said it exactly. I think it was Buffett. You know, the thing where you get, you're getting thrown a bunch of balls and you only really should swing at the ones that you feel that you can hit out of the park or whatever. So I think that was just why I put the the, the, the guy hitting a baseball on the front cover. Okay, all like right, all right. You made you made me feel better. I'm not mocking baseball. Yeah, <laughs> you made me feel better. I yeah. I forgive you. All right, we, I, I love you again. It's fine. Yeah, you know, but but uh, but and then really, in all seriousness, you know, for you, why 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 is the case? Why is good investing often boring? You know, for you, I think. For me, I like to keep it boring because I don't want to get too pulled in or sucked into what everyone else is doing that's exciting. Um, I love learning about what other people are doing and kind of trying to you know, learn from someone who's way smarter and has had all the experience. But when you're looking at trends like, and I hate quoting it, but like in you know, 2020, everyone was just doing Momo, all that kind of stuff and just going crazy. Um, I didn't really want to get too sucked into that because that's really exciting and that's really you know, it's popping off and the returns show for it. And that might also draw me back to, you know, why I'm a, the business analyst, stock analyst question, you know, I'm sure in years I'll reflect and be like, you know, was that actually an opportune time to really kind of pivot hard into that space, even just for a short period of time? You probably could have spent six months in that space and earned two years, three years worth of returns over, over six months. Um, but that's something to come back to later in later years. But for me, good investing is often boring because it's really just about me kind of well before I started sharing stuff publicly I thought my thought process was a lot better because it was really just me isolated I didn't really have a big social circle that liked discussing investing so a lot of my own thoughts were created um, just through reading stuff and having those thoughts whereas when you're kind of sharing thoughts publicly you have all all these different opinions and thoughts kind of floating around you and even if you don't consciously absorb them you're going to be subconsciously kind of letting that ingrain into your thought process and you might even develop ideas that are not your own without realizing it kind of like inception or you might you know there's just so much kind of persuasion and you know causation that comes from reading you know 200 people's thoughts every day on a timeline whatever it may be 
So for when I'm investing, I like to try to keep insulated and just stick to the investment policy statement that I wrote and you know just focus on continue doing what I'm doing. I'm not really comparing my results to anyone else. I know some people that don't even benchmark, um, which is something that I come around to, but really just trying to keep it insulated and doing what I'm doing. And it doesn't really matter if you know I'm buying something that's growing 100% a year or if it's growing at 10% a year, but you know it's fairly valued and it's got you know a solid position in the market or some kind of niche that's kind of hard to penetrate. Um, I don't really care what it is I'm buying as long as I can see value in it and see a return in it. And yeah, just kind of avoiding all the noise that's kind of flying around. So when I say it's boring, I mean, how I invest is incredibly boring and I want my investments to be boring like that, yeah. Listen, man, I, I commend you that you're able to block out the noise. Like you're almost at 40,000 followers on Twitter. How you block it out of the noise? I, I hey man, power to you, dude. Like that's- I don't know if, um, yeah, it's an interesting one because I, I still to this day try to respond or at least kind of like to acknowledge that I've seen it to everyone that responds to anything I do, um, which can be very time consuming and it's probably not super healthy, um, but it doesn't really bother me so much. Um, but yeah, maybe at one stage I might have to stop doing that and just focus on dms instead or something like that but i feel like i nobody owes me anything so i just i would to give everyone you know just you know you've said something to me like i wouldn't ignore someone in the street so i'm always about kind of yeah and and, and also if someone and especially if you're putting out an idea and there's a real it's a quality critique you're like oh this is this gets my yeah. brain going like i appreciate this like that's why you put those ideas out there because yeah. at the end of the day like that's that's what you want, you know. That's why you join platforms like Twitter. That's why you join all these different social media platforms. Well, Twitter's the best, in my opinion, when it comes to yeah. Uh, I think just for for what we are doing with it, I think it's the best. Like I can put out yeah. a question about something that I'm unsure about, like what's the bear case for X Y Z, and I'll have you know tens to hundreds of people just give me all the bear cases, and I can just go explore all of those and kind of you know distinguish whether I agree with that or not. Um, but it's a good, sometimes it's been a good starting point for me to kind of go down an avenue somewhere or sometimes someone just tweeted me something random and I've spent a whole day digging into it and then, you know, either learn something or kind of used it or created a piece of content based around that from the little piece of inspiration or whatever it was. But yeah, it's a super powerful platform, um, freakishly addictive and yeah, they suck at making money. So it's an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's pretty funny. Um, so I, I want to also ask you this because you happen to fall into the, the Gen Z uh, investor mm. title, you know, whether you like it or not, uh, you're, you're Gen Z, you know, listen, we're born with it. I'm millennial. I, I got to just accept it. You know, why do you think this idea of, and, and I really think it's majorly taken hold in the last year and change just because of, you know, the craziness of the markets and mm. what's been going on. But, you know, why, why do you think this idea of boring investing hasn't really taken hold as much within the Gen Z generation as it has with, with some of the older generations? So I think, I can't remember who said it, um, but, you know, like whenever you kind of come to that maturity age when you're like 16 to 18, whenever it is, like you start like getting interested in investing, the environment that you're in is like, you know, a big kind of motivating shaping kind of how you invest maybe on the aggregate, not for everyone, definitely. Um, but when you look at all these great investors that came out after the Great Recession, um, 
it's like net nets and it's all value and it's like you know because it makes sense because like everyone was shocked um and then when i think about gen z i would i would say i'm right in the cusp so like i don't really i was still in that generation where you would go to someone's house before phoning them and you just see if they're coming out you know to play whereas now kid younger kids they they'll text you um i didn't have internet on my phone until i was maybe like 16 17 so I'm glad that I was born in between those cusps so I can still appreciate um, what life was like and now appreciate what, what it is like um, and appreciate both. Um, but yeah, the Gen Z thing, I don't, know, I don't know if it's a matter of what I just touched on. You know, like if you're turning 18, 19 in this environment, that's kind of post great financial crisis, really. Um, so you, the only thing you've really seen, especially if you're investing in America, is, you know, stonks go up um stonks weren't a thing until 2020 but you know the, the market did pretty well over that period of time um i don't have the data on me but you know everyone says eight percent a year typically over 100 years it's probably been closer to like 10 or 12 over that period um so it's been pretty good and as things like robin hood come out and just general the digitization of the world and you can hear more about this stuff you know filings are more accessible the disclosures a lot better um so you just have people kind of getting more interested but then i think it's just the environment um when i started investing i had nobody in my family or, or friendship circle that really talked about investing so i didn't have any influences at the beginning all i had were books um which i'm grateful for but now if if you're like if you start investing last year or two years ago and you're kind of young and impressionable then you're going to have people screaming at you to buy random tokens or you should buy this because it's cheap um or you should buy this because it's growing at whatever you really need to kind of develop all those kind of senses for yourself but i think either way when you experience stuff you're going to learn anyway so if these people get burned or whatever they're gonna maybe learn but it depends how far ingrained that is into your kind of psych so if you did start investing in maybe 2019 18 20 and you just you've had these either one to three amazing years. Um, three years is a long time and I forget how long it takes to kind of develop a habit, maybe two months, something like that. Um, but if that's just kind of your perception of what the market is, then whenever it goes south, which it often, not often does, but, you know, eventually does, that'll be A, hurtful, and then B, you know, if you don't learn from that, you're probably just going to keep repeating the same mistakes. So, was your question why are Gen Z interested in investing, or is it why are they so, you know, kind of crazy? I forgot. <laughs> no, I would never, definitely not crazy for sure. Look, yeah. as as I said a little earlier in our interview, like if if whatever if you're making money, whatever, obviously as long as it's legal, you know, right? Mm -hmm. If you're and investing and you're making it in a legal right way, whatever your strategy is, hey, keep doing it. Right, like that—that's working for you. My my question was more around the uh, around the uh, not embracing the boring, not embracing okay. the Peter Lynch style of like you know investing in funeral home companies or you know uh, this boring appliance that everybody uses but you don't think about. You know, like that. It seems like yeah. that kind of investing has amongst the Gen Z maybe isn't as looked at because it's you know it's, it's not as sexy or it's not as get rich quick kind of situation, you know, like that, yeah. that's tends to be some of the themes that come up when, you know, I've just, you know, tacitly seen it, you know, on social media, on 
Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing, you know, buying into tokens and all this stuff. That, could, like, yeah. You know, it, it's, I think, it's um, just, sorry, I don't mean, no, to no, you, no, no, you go, you go. Um, yeah. And that, in that sense, I would just, yeah, the environment that you're, you brought, if you're, if you know, if you're investing straight after a great depression, you're going to be, you know, you're looking for like preservation of cash, right? You know, you, all that kind of stuff you're scared whereas if you grew up after the financial crisis you're not scared of anything because a that didn't affect you you're probably too young to experience it i remember the financial crisis but i was i only really remember what that did to my parents not so much what it did to me and that, even at that it's vague um so and i also think another factor is just like people's attention spans that are so short i even noticed that myself um for me like listening to audio I prefer that so much because I can do that when I'm walking around or I'm at the gym. Watching a YouTube interview is not is something I struggle with because after five minutes, you know, I start teetering off and doing other things. Because um, I like listening to podcasts when I'm doing something else. So something passive, you know, like walking or running or shopping, because then I can really hear it. Whereas when I'm watching a YouTube video, you know, I have to focus on it and I can't really do other stuff. And then if I start doing other stuff, you know, I'm not really focusing on either. And then when you just have the kind of the proliferation of social media, you know, Instagram, I just think people's attention spans might be shortening, might just be the environment that they're in. If they relate that to then investing, you know, I'm, I'm buying these stocks and they're only going up 6%, 8% a year. That sucks. I want to buy something that's like sexy, that triples my money in a month. Like, Everyone's going to learn that that's not the case, but maybe for the next, for the first two, three years of their investing kind of life, when they don't really experience any backlash from doing that, that might just be what they do. Because um, we all did, I think I did that when I first started. I was buying like cannabis companies and stuff, and just kind of, I didn't really have that short term attention span. I was planning on, you know, holding them for a while. But um, yeah, it's interesting. And a lot of the, a lot of the time it is just kind of speculative stuff like during last year just very anecdotal i had people like messaging me asking me what i thought about this stock who have never that's expressed kind of yeah it's crazy because i've seen people tweeting about that and i was like oh that's never happened to me and then like within a few months it starts happening uh frequently um some people reached out with genuine intention which is like oh, i want to understand this which is cool um, but then some people were just like oh have you seen this 55 cent energy stock um you know like aluminium is and whatever and it's gone up like 100 and i'm like they've never expressed interest in that ever before so it's like they're just coming into the space and then speculating on something probably get burned and then they might just never come back to it which is a shame because really you want more people to be interested in it and to stay around and if their first experience is you know i just got burned then it might take them a while before they come back um yeah, I think generally, though, I think, you know, with the kind of, I don't like saying democratization of finance, I don't believe in that personally. But when you're making it more available to people, I think people are going to take an interest. And you have people who are interested in, you know, even index funds, stuff like that. A lot of people in the UK, especially. So in the UK, I can't remember the statistic, but I was reading about it the other day, you know, most people are just invested in kind of residential properties, like, maybe 10 to 15% of the UK adult population have money and in kind of individual stocks. Whereas in America, it's, it's way higher. I think it's the majority. Um, and that's just a cultural thing. But loads of people in the UK will just buy bonds um, that give you a tiny amount every year and they're just backed by the government. 
um, some of them just some of them don't even pay interest. They just give you kind of an entry into a raffle where you could win money, which is crazy. But you would rather own that than a kind of an equity. Um, so it might just be the understanding thing. I don't know if it's a British thing, but yeah, it is interesting. And I'm definitely in that demographic and I'm thankful that I've spent a bit of time kind of understanding that that's not how the world works. Yeah. No, I, I was just going to ask you, like, you know, you can really tell sentiment by, uh, you know, how much, uh, how many of your friends that have never expressed interest in finance, like how many, how many times I, I was, I had the same boat, you know, people ask me about crypto and random stocks and yeah. especially, especially micro caps, actually, like whenever they've somehow heard about it or marketed about a micro cap. That's what I get the message. Like, hey, have you heard of ABCDF? Yeah, you know, when they when they come to you for microcap, like you know, like nobody's talking about that in like mainstream media. Like I was, some guy sent me something. It was like eighty to one hundred million dollars market cap. I was like, how do you know about this? Like somebody must have just pitched it to you. And like, I'm not gonna make any accusations or anything, but I'm just, it's just curious. Like, how do you know about this tiny little uh, stock? Right. Yeah. It, yeah, no, it's it's funny with microcaps. It's like, especially if they're asking about that one, I, I do the same thing. I'm like, hey man, how did you hear about this first? You know, you just want to make sure that they weren't, you know, they didn't see it like somehow they they got a cookie or something. You know what I mean? Like they got on some random websites cookies or in an email, you know, in an email blast or something, you know, like that. Like. You know, you just want to, you, you definitely want to be much more protective when like they get a mm. smaller microcap name that, you know, you never know where they got it from. But um, so you've, you've said a lot of different investing experiences already on here, but I, I have to ask, you know, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most thus far in your career? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think boring answer, but I think just, and I'll give you, a, I'll give you a, an example, but um, boring answer for me is just gradually. So thankfully I've never been burned significantly. I've never lost 50% in a year or something like that. Um, the biggest drawdown I ever had was just in March. Um, and I was fully expecting to just be bleeding for years after that, when I was putting money in, in March, May, 2020, you know, I didn't expect to see any returns for years. Um, that's just the way the world works. Couldn't have expected that. Um, but even when I was kind of in that new stage, that's when I made most of the mistakes. Still making mistakes now, obviously, but I would like to think that I'm guarding some of the downside at least. Um, in the in the initial years, you just you just kind of learn by you know like when you're learning to walk, you fall over a lot. Um, and when you put a, an egg in a pot of boiling water, it hardens up. And I think that's you know a terrible analogy. I don't know why I said it, but, you know, you just make mistakes and then you learn about them and it kind of, you know, you learn about holding periods, you learn about volatility. The first time, the actual first investment I made, I had a smaller brokerage account and I'd play around in it. But then I I went and got like a, a big boy brokerage account um, that charges me commissions and rips me off on currency conversion. Um, still using it today, sadly. Um, but yeah, I got kind of this big boy broker account felt good. And then the first investment I made on there with all my money um, was just on a, a cannabis stock. And then I think it went up a little bit and then it kind of went down, it was down 5% and I panic sold. And that was in the space of like a month. And it was just so silly. And But it was such a good lesson because I maybe lost 5% of my net worth at the time as a young, as a young you know person. But 
it was just like rationalizing that experience. So like, you know, you held this for months and it went down 5%. And like, you clearly don't understand this as business because you sold it after it went down 5% from your cost basis. And then there's other instances where I bought tiny little uh, micro caps and then they've went down 8%. So much red flags have popped up and I've just ignored them all thinking, you know, back to Graham, oh, you need to hold, you need to hold. And then back to Buffett, you need to hold forever. That's our favorite. You just kind of delude yourself. But, you know, that's all important to your learning process. This was very early on, I might add. Um, I remember in one instance, I held kind of a micro cap Australian um, CBD slash hemp food slash marijuana cultivation company. And it just had so many different things going on. And I thought, wow, this, this business has three different businesses you know it's like three times the you know the opportunity and the the ceo changed hands maybe <clears throat> three times within six months uh that's fine just ignore it you know they were reporting kind of declining sales from everywhere apart from australia which is where they're based they had operations elsewhere i was like oh that's fine you know they'll get it back next year and i was just ignoring all this stuff and now the stock doesn't even trade on exchange uh, the business is still around, I think. I sometimes check on it just for the, the hilarity of it, just because it's a nice reminder, you know, like you're an idiot and you still are. Um, but I think I don't have a specific answer, but I just think generally you just make so many stupid mistakes in the first two or three years. And I think if you keep the kind of sums of money that you're investing small, um, then that's the best time to do it. I would dread if I was in a situation where someone gave me a lot of money and I'd never understood how to invest. And then I started that learning process because I'd probably lose most of it. Um, but, you know, as you get older, your, your kind of earning capacity increases and then it becomes a lot more prominent and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, just making loads of stupid mistakes is the, the best way that I've found to learn, I think. Very good. All right. Well, you, you actually just gave some great advice there for new investors, but I mean, is there anything maybe you'd like to add to that as, as we're kind of rounding the band here for the interview. So, you know, is yeah. there anything you'd like to add, add there? I think if you're brand, if you're brand new and you have no idea what you're doing, I think I would go on kind of like a self-discovery little journey. If you know someone that's like in that space, like talk to them and ask them as well. Don't just listen to what I'm saying or what any particular person is saying, but I think it's important to kind of learn in isolation sometimes for the very, you know, initial bit. So you can kind of develop your own thoughts about stuff. You know, if someone's teaching you about market efficiency, they're going to be teaching it you through their lens. Whereas I would rather read about it through my own lens, understand, you know, which side do I kind of agree with? And then you can discuss that with other people with different opinions and kind of back, back and forth. I think always be wary of kind of learning through someone else's lens in that sense. I think generally, I always recommend the the little book of investing series. I don't know if you've read those. They just cover, yeah. Uh, my bookshelf is somewhere else. I was, I, I was like, I, no, I just I just bought a few books. So I was like, wait, did I just, yeah. did I, did I just get that one? No, I did. Okay, yeah. But, um, I know, I know, I know the series you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. there's yeah. tiny little books, and they cover a great range of concepts from value investing to kind of market cycles, to economics, to behavioral investing uh boring dividend investing you know boring index invest like everything you could think of and it'll give you a good perspective on each kind of niche within the kind of space um and they're all written by great investors and they're relatively short as well you could probably finish one in maybe you know a day or two if you're really if you don't have much of a life um so that's a good place to start 
And I would say basic accounting is so important. I know a lot of people that go into the kind of technical side of it, um, which is totally fair. I, I don't believe all that kind of stuff where they say technical is fugazi, whatever. I think it's, it's, it's legitimate. It's price action. It's volume. I just don't really do it so much, but I respect people that do. You know, you can go down two paths. You can follow the kind of, you can start with Graham and you can go to Buffett and you can go down that route and realize that value investing is maybe not for you or it is, or you can go down the kind of Mark uh, Minivani and do all that kind of stuff. Um, whichever way you go, I think it's important to, important to learn about both. But whichever way you go, I think it's important to learn about basic accounting as well. Because, you know, that's how you kind of read the language of what a business is trying to tell you and what management is trying to tell you. And if you don't understand that, even at a basic level, then you're going to struggle to really kind of um, follow that thing. You don't have to go crazy. You don't have to understand deferred tax assets and all that kind of stuff. Even if you just read the line items and understand what they mean, you know, dip into the notes, all that kind of stuff. I think that's a great base because then you can just start understanding what people are talking about, you know, when they're referring to certain portions of the business that you might not know. And equally, I think I find reading a 10K is like reading a short book. Um, it's just learning about something new. You're learning about what are the KPIs for this business? What kind of drives it? What are they looking at? You know, how many people are employed for this business? How fast are they growing? How many stores do they have in America? You know, are they moving to a different country? Are they opening up somewhere internationally? It's just interesting. And I think it's hard if you're not actually genuinely interested in that to kind of stick with it. Um, but I just love businesses. So that's kind of where that marries up together. Um, on the whole, I would say do all of that and don't take your financial advice from TikTok. And I think that'll be it. Yeah. I think I think that might be the title of the pod. Don't take your financial advice from TikTok. <laughs> With Connor Keep people waiting right to the end for it, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone's like, when is when's the conversation about TikTok? Yeah. yeah. But uh, all right. Well, with that, Connor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with that, where can my audience go and find more information about you? Uh, read your newsletter. Follow you on social media. The, the whole bit. Yeah. So everything. If you just go on Twitter and type in investment talk with two Ks at the end, that's my Twitter account. That's kind of like the central hub for everything that I do. The link to my newsletter is in there. Um, yeah. And just feel free to reach out, DM me. My DMs are open, always up for, you know, conversation and stuff like that. So that's where you can find me. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Connor, thank you so much for joining me today. This was awesome. I really do appreciate it and good luck. Stay safe. And uh, you'll, you'll be back on soon, you know, either on this yeah, or on the round table, on. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. So, Connor, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Cool. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.